Howdy, 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 folks. Here we are, episode four, Ankle Breakers Podcast. Today I'm here with my good friend and diehard Miami Heat fan, Tom Ferrer. Tom, how, how, how are we feeling today? I'm, I'm feeling great. It's, it's been a nice day. It's day, what, 11 of the Damian Lillard saga. I feel like I expected this to get done in a couple days. I keep checking Twitter like an absolute madman, and nothing's happened. And apparently recently, there hasn't been any traction uh, over the last week and a half. So I'm just trying to be as patient as possible. Uh, like Jake said, I am a lifelong Heat diehard pre-LeBron for any people who might accuse me of otherwise, but yeah, happy to be here. And on that Damian Lillard note, I know I saw earlier today that Joe Cronin said that he's in no rush at all to get a deal done. He said that he'll he'll wait months if that's what it takes. So we, we, might, we might start the season seeing Lillard uh, sitting out on the bench, refusing to play. We'll see how that goes. That's what his agent suggested, that if it's anywhere other than Miami, he'll, he'll sit, he'll refuse to come. I'm, I'm not sure I necessarily buy that, considering his window's dwindling, but it'll be interesting to see what he actually chooses to do there. I, you know, it's interesting. I do believe that Cronin is bluffing in this instance. However, you have to think, let's say it does take a few months and Lillard starts on the bench. He's, I mean, not playing at all, not coming off the bench, but not playing whatsoever. His leverage only gets better and better at this point because the Trailblazers then get desperate knowing he will not accept a trade. Not that that, that he has a no trade clause, but he won't go anywhere other than Miami. So it just gives Pat Riley more leverage to send a worse and worse package until they finally bite the bullet in Portland. So we'll see what happens. In terms of other things that are going on in the league right now, the thing that's really kind of intriguing me the most is the idea of the midseason tournament that the NBA is introducing. For those that aren't super familiar, they're going to bring about six groups of five teams in each drawn randomly based on finish last season. So they'll draw out of the top three seeds in each conference, then out of the top six, then out of the top, et cetera, et cetera. You get the point. And then after that, go down to the uh, the six group winners and two wild cards from each conference. The thing that I'm wondering most about this is how much are fans going to care about? I mean, at the end of the day, I feel like teams want to win a, a championship and sure that this, it, it's, it's some kind of trophy. But do you see this as being something that people are going to really care about since it's it's not the Larry O'Brien that they're going to be hoisting at the end of it? I mean, look, I am no soccer fan. However, I do know over in Europe, they do have a ton of these mid-season tournaments that these trophies mean something to these to these people. It may be better to talk to a, a Premier League fan about that, but coming from a strictly North American perspective, I think the NBA went about this in a very interesting way. Uh, that will make it at least somewhat compelling. First off, putting games on Fridays and Tuesdays in November and December. At first, you wonder what the NBA is doing going head-to-head against the NFL as the playoff push is happening in that league. However, Tuesdays and Fridays aren't game days. So for avid sports fans like you or myself, you have you know, meaningful sports to watch every single night of the week, or at least most nights of the week which is interesting. I feel like the incentives for players, uh, monetarily at least, will get them to try. But I think the thing that actually is the most important about this is that until I believe either the semifinal or the final stage, 
these games count towards the regular season standings. If they did not, I don't think anyone would care because it's meaningless. But these games do have meanings uh, at, to, until the end of the season when you see teams jockeying for position in the playoffs. These games in the tournament may have been important. So we'll see. It's the first year, but I, I'll be curious at least. I, I've heard a lot of people bring in the soccer comparisons, and I feel like it's kind of comparing oranges to apples a little bit. When you look at what a lot of those, take a look at the Premier League, for example, the other mid-season tournaments that they'll do for the Premier League, well, they got the League Cup, uh, of course, for the team that finishes the season at the top of the tables, but then they also have the FA Cup, but that's not them playing just against the same group of teams, that's like all the teams that are in England, and then there's the Champions League, which again, that's all the teams in Europe, so it's not just, you know, the difference here is you look at it in the end of the season, the the real postseason, it's it's the same teams that are going to be competing as the same teams that you have in, in the you're not bringing about a different pool of competition i feel like that's kind of what makes the english soccer league uh or european in general soccer leagues mid-season tournaments a bit more compelling it's because it's they're going against different competition but i i do think that you do have a, a good point with a lot of that stuff i know that they're awarding you know a mid-season tournament mvp and i'm not sure how people are going to feel about that but I I think the the midseason tournament MVP certainly is I think it's somewhat funny in terms of when when at the end you know give it a few years you're comparing players legacies uh, I I you know a good parallel is this was the first year that both the Eastern and Western Conference Finals had MVPs and Jimmy Butler I'm again shameless heat plug Jimmy Butler won eastern conference finals mvp whether or not that was deserved he still won and then people caleb martin (laughs) caleb martin i i hope he isn't traded to portland i think he's on the best contract in the league but i digress regardless of anything people on twitter were cracking jokes about how michael jordan or lebron doesn't have any eastern conference finals mvps so what happens when the clippers who suck in the playoffs typically do really well mid mid season when everyone's healthy Paul George, for example, maybe wins uh, the MVP award for the midseason tournament. And then Brandon Miller looks a little smarter, saying that he's the GOAT over Michael Jordan. I'm joking, of course. I, I think it's somewhat dumb. But we'll see. Maybe maybe this will be like an MVP situation in the NFL. Yeah. I, I, I kind of view it in the same light as when Damian Lillard won the bubble MVP back in 2020 there wasn't one basketball fan that really took that seriously i saw i saw him getting made fun of for it more than i saw him getting praised for you know playing well in the bubble people were making the memes of a lot of people have seen damian lillard holding up a photo like a a, a mickey mouse shaped trophy uh like the photoshops just everywhere i feel like this is going to get that same treatment in a lot of ways I hope that it doesn't. I hope that it pans out well because I always love to see, you know, real meaningful basketball because it, it's tough when you get a 82-game season as opposed to, like, say, the 16-game season for the NFL to keep people invested all the time. But I think that this hopefully does that. But I just don't see it being that huge. Maybe in a couple of years once they work out the kinks, uh, it will become a little bit more of a, of a spectacle. Maybe it'll draw in more viewers. But I guess we'll just have to see, wait and see if that happens. In terms of other new policies that the NBA is instituting, the league announced a pair of rule changes today, yesterday rather, we're recording right now on Wednesday. They introduced a flopping penalty and an additional coach's challenge. So for the flopping penalty, when a player gets called for the flop, 
it, it, it results in a, in a free throw considered a quote-unquote non-unsportsmanlike tech, so you can't be ejected for it. It doesn't count towards suspensions and such. How do you feel about the institution of this rule as someone that has Kyle Lowry on your team? You know, I was actually going to open up my, uh, my portion on this with a joke myself, but um, we'll see. We'll see if Lowry changes a little bit of his play style. Um, if it's up to me, he won't even be on the Miami Heat at the start of the season. We'll see. His contract isn't great. I'd rather have Lillard, obviously. I think anyone would say that, except for maybe Toronto fans. Uh, however, I will say this uh, maybe, you know, this is circulating between league, uh, between league circles before uh, this was announced to the public. Makes a lot more sense that the Celtics traded away Marcus Smart. So we'll see. You know, they've tried to do things in the past to curb flopping. They find players, I believe. Did it stop anything? No. Will star players still get preferential treatment? Yes. LeBron will get an Oscar every time a call doesn't get, go his way. And he'll be fine. Are they really going to put LeBron out to dry like this? They're not. I don't think this really changes too much unless you're a nobody, which I think just shifts the star power in the league even further away from your average player so maybe a net negative but negligibly yeah i mean it, it's one of those things you, you mentioned that a couple of years back they introduced a fine for flopping and i believe there's been you could count on your fingers the number of players that have actually received that fine and they were all within like the first like month or two and then the league kind of just gave up on on enforcing that rule i'm not sure that 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 we're going to see this one enforced any more strictly. I hope that we do because I think that it's kind of a disservice to the game of basketball when you reward guys that are flopping all the time. Even as someone that really did like Marcus Smart, I mean, come on, some of the stuff was pretty egregious. Or The one that I think of a lot is if you watched Dylan Brooks at all in college against Utah, he didn't just fall. It was after the whistle was blown and he took a leap into it and then another leap off one leg before flailing in the air like a fish uh, if you look up dylan brooks versus utah flop it, it should come up pretty fast it's, it's it's one of the most egregious things i've ever seen but we can't have things happening like that in league all the time especially since th this is a problem that's been getting worse and worse every year it's it's interesting to see as well how players adapt to this if they get a little smarter with their flopping i you know i don't claim to be uh, a great basketball player. However, I did play a little bit in high school and I remember during practice we literally had flopping drills where one player would dribble a little too close to you and then you would flop and the coach would kind of judge you on how realistic it looked. None of us were that great at it. I don't I'm not sure I ever pulled it out in a game. Maybe uh, some Kevin Love underneath the rim action on a drive, but even then it that I was probably actually getting run into. Uh, all this is to say, I just think players will adapt to it and refs won't care after a while once they realize that the product, at the end of the day, the NBA is a business, the product will suffer. So this is only temporary um, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that I saw on Twitter, De'Aaron Fox really wasn't a fan of the new, of the new rule. He fired off six tweets back to back to back talking about a few of the criticisms that he had were kind of invalid like he was saying how it could mess up players money with the fact that it's a non-unsportsmanlike 
tech, then that's not really true as much. You're not going to get suspensions because of it. But the one thing that was somewhat valid is that there are times when guys do get hit. The ref does, doesn't see the uh, doesn't see the contact, but they see the flop after the fact. And I think that I hear what he's saying there, but that can be said about pretty much anything. You know, when when you see there's a little scuffle or something like that. Sometimes the ref miss, miss the contact there, and then the guy that reacts to getting hit after the whistle is the only one that gets, you know, teed up for it, even though he wasn't the one that started it. I don't think that this is going to be something that's that much of a problem of, oh, well, the guy actually got got hit, and then they call it a flop. I, I think that, especially since the way that they're enforcing it, they they don't blow the play dead. They they call it after the, after the whistle's blown. They're going to call it in, like, neutral situations. Interesting. I wonder then, because wait, hold on. Just remind me. Is it? Do you get free? Th- you get free throws when this is called, right? One free throw. Yes. One free throw, and do you get possession as well? No. It's it just it just think of it like a standard tech. So you go up, you get the one free throw, and then whoever has the ball. Go- and that's why they're doing it like in between possessions. So that way, you know, say a defender flops, the play doesn't end. The the, the offensive player can still keep trying to score the basket. You see, I'm I'm not so sure I like that to be honest, because. Uh, Put yourself in like a late game situation. It's a very close game. And there's, you know, something in the middle of the play may have been a flop, may have not, and determining, I guess, depending on whether or not the ref is, no, I wouldn't say crooked. However, what happens if like maybe the, the play doesn't go the way that the league, the the refs, not to get conspir- conspiracy, on you but what happens if they just as soon as the play is over they're like oh actually there was a flop let's go back and shoot free throws that one point could be massive so i'm not i'm not so sure i don't like it being called in the moment i i do think that it's not quite the same since hockey officials need to raise their arm during the play to say that the that the foul's been called but like i i do think that having the delayed penalty does make it helpful i don't think that the offensive players say, say say they're in the paint, you know, say say Joel Embiid has a defender with his back to the basket and the defender flops. Embiid should still be able to finish the play and, you know, if he's that close to the basket, he should get the opportunity to, you know, go up and get those points. Otherwise, the flopping calls, if they blow it dead in the moment, could become like a little bit of a cop-out. Oh, I'm a guard that's stuck defending Giannis in the paint. Well, a flop blows the play dead. At least now he only gets one free throw instead of a lane to the basket. And if it's a guy like Giannis, only a 50% chance he even makes the deck free throw. A little bit more, probably like 60-something, but points stand regardless. That is a good point. And I, I think you actually described the happy medium at the beginning of your little bit there when you compared it to hockey and how on a delayed penalty refs have to raise their hand so that they know it's coming once the offending team touches the puck again. So if they are able to do that in basketball, once the offending team touches the ball, uh, then the call is made. I think then that makes it a little less uh, exploitative, potentially. Yeah. And now for the other rule, the additional coaches challenge that they got, it seems, I feel like this has been something that they should have had all along. You look at especially the Celtics playoff run, Joe Missoula had no idea when to use his challenge. He didn't want to burn it early, but it, it seemed like a lot of times he was, if it's not in the last 30 seconds of the game, he didn't want to touch it. And 
being forced to feel like you can't use it at all before the last minute because you only get the one. It's not fair to a team if they if they if they're right about the challenge. I feel like you look at the NFL, they have the two challenges, but if you get both of those right, you get a third still. I think that if you if you win the first, you should at the very least get a second. I feel like this is doing the absolute minimum, especially since one basket can be the difference quite frequently in playoff games. I agree. I agree. This is absolutely a win. I, You're right. I don't know why they didn't institute this from the beginning. I mean, there are plenty of instances where coaches were clowned uh, by the media on, on Twitter for using their challenge way too early in a game when I think making it to where you get a second, if you're correct, it keeps the refs more honest. It keeps the game more honest. And I think overall, I mean... There, there was, I don't think there's much of an argument against this. I think the NFL model is, while it, while it does have its flaws, it's absolutely worlds better than what we saw in the NBA last year. So, I don't know, not much to say about this in terms of uh, any negatives to bring up. I think it's great. Yeah, The only thing that I think could be at all controversial is the fact that uh, in the first one, if you, if you win, you keep your timeout. If you lose, you lose the timeout. In the second one, you lose the timeout no matter what for game flow purposes, which I think that's kind of an... I don't have that much of a problem with it, but if you've been wronged by the refs twice, I'm not sure that you should be penalized by losing a timeout, but I do understand what they're doing by trying to keep the games moving, especially since NBA, more than any other sport, the last two minutes. Just stop and start. Yeah. Oh, oh my God, yeah. It just takes way too long. Um, I Interesting logistical question, I think, here. Say you're out of timeouts and you want to challenge the play, can you? Or is it like a technical situation a la Chris Weber at Michigan? I think that it's a technical situation. I think it's the same way that the NFL is where if you don't have any timeouts left, you can't make the challenge. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, okay. So you just can't. Okay, that makes sense. But then I wonder, will coaches then be holding on to that precious last timeout in order to make this this challenge? Yeah, I, I think that that's something that most coaches kind of already try to do anyway. I mean, you don't see many coaches that go into the last minute, last thirty seconds with with no timeouts left. I mean, that that that's that that's the time that you probably need most. Other than I don't know, say the other team's going on a run, you want to try to stop their momentum. There's not many times that a timeout does as much to benefit you as it does in the last minute. So most of these coaches are going to be holding on to them regardless. True. I, I feel like it shouldn't be that much of an issue, but we'll we'll see how it plays out as this as the season goes on. I'm 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 excited that now we'll probably actually see challenges used a lot more instead of oh that seemed like a pretty egregious call, but what if we want to save it because one of our guys is in foul trouble and we want to be able to challenge say their fifth foul later in the game? It 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 like you said it it, it brings more accountability to the refs in a lot of ways. And now I guess let's move on to a little bit of free agency non-news. Uh, it's been a pretty slow year for free agency. Not many big names. The big names that were available mostly just stayed with their teams. Which makes it kind of interesting that two of the better players in this free agency class, Christian Wood and Kelly Oubre, still remain available. I mean, I'm I'm particularly high on Christian Wood. I've, I've been a big fan of his since his Detroit days. I, I feel like he's been 
consistently pretty underrated, but it, it, it surprised me that him in particular is still available at this point. What do you think is uh, the main reason why these guys can't seem to find a home yet that this late into the free agency period? It is interesting. I First off, well, we'll talk about Christian Wood since he's the, he's the main guy here that I think is getting a little screwed, I might say. Obviously, he has motor issues, or at least that's what they'll tell you. Most of his more productive years came on really, really bad teams. Uh, empty numbers, one might say. But if you can lock down a guy who I believe he's, if not seven foot six eleven, he's very tall and can give you a steady 16, 17 on the bench on, on pretty good shooting splits and get you a few rebounds here or there, I'd take that. He's a solid three-point shooter, you know, 38 from three for a big man. It's pretty good. If he can get you, what is it? He averaged 7.3 rebounds uh, this past year. Not the best for a guy his size, but not the worst per se. You pair him with a more traditional big. Again, shameless heat plug, bam out of bio. He's not much of a shooter. I think he could give you a lot of value, especially if that big man that you've paired him with is very good on defense and can kind of mask some of Wood's deficiencies. So why has he been left unsigned? I'm, I'm curious to see if he's waiting for the rest of free agency, the dominoes to fall, Damian Lillard, for example, but he's still on the younger side. So I'd imagine he'd want his payday. I can't really put my finger on it other than maybe teams don't want another Ennis Cancer. Solid rebounder, good scorer, absolute liability on defense can lose you games on that side of the floor who knows yeah i mean i think that the difference between wood and Cantor is that at wood at the very least has the athleticism to be a good defender and that's why i i'm normally not one to talk about guys effort when you know i i i don't know the man i can't i can't tell you how hard he's working but when he has the tools that he has i mean he's he's his standing reach is about nine three nine four. He should be able to be a more valuable rim protector than he is with his athletic abilities. I think that if you put him in a situation where maybe the team is more primed to win games right now, I'd I I think that would have a lot better. You would probably be able to have some better luck coaching him into playing more tenacious defense, and I'd I'd like to see that. But again, that, that that shouldn't be a reason why he's still left unsigned this late in the period. I mean, there's plenty of guys that play no defense that have gotten contracts because of their offensive ability. Katie was getting in a in a Twitter argument again today about his point was that at the end of the day, the game's about getting buckets, which, again, you can say what you want about defense. I'm someone that loves defense, but it is about getting buckets. If you, if you can get a guy that can score your points... It's going to have value, and it, I don't think... I've heard people talk about him taking a vet minimum with a contender. I don't think he should have to do that. He's definitely more talented than some of the guys that have gotten large contracts this off season. But, I don't know, we'll, we'll see what kind of happens with him. On to Kelly Oubre. I know that his numbers this year, he's a guy that really kind of put up some numbers. He, 20 points a game, which is six more than he had the year before, but the efficiency is a little bit concerning. How do you feel about kind of uh, Kelly Oubre's uh, prospects for free agency this year? Kelly Oubre is another one where I'm surprised he's unsigned by this point. 
it it has to be that teams are scared that his production last year was just a result of him playing on a god-awful team in the Charlotte Hornets. That being said, anyone that can give you 20 a night has value, even if he's coming off the bench for a much better team and giving you 12 or 13 a night. Maybe his efficiency goes up because he's not having to shoot as much on, like he was on a really bad team. I, This one also baffles me. Um, he, you know, not the best on defense, but a 7-2 wingspan should at least allow you to block passing lanes, get a steal here or there, a block maybe a game if you're, he's getting consistent minutes. I, I, this one I think might be more confusing to me than Wood. He has the potential to be an absolute spark plug off the bench. Um, you're telling me a team like the Los Angeles Lakers couldn't use a guy like him? Not to sound like the national media, but I think he's he's plug and play there. I mean, that's what did them in a lot of the time in the in the playoff series against the Nuggets, rather than just going against maybe the arguably the best player in the world. Their bench is non-existent. He's a good scoring punch. So why don't they sign him? Why don't most teams sign him? I this one confuses me as well. Yeah, I mean, and you were talking about you know his wingspan, his ability to block passing lanes. He was top 10 in the NBA this past year in deflections per game, uh, tipping 3.2 passes per game. I mean, he's got the active hands, but sometimes guys just have a tendency to blow by him a little bit. I think that if you put him in a situation where maybe it seems like the team has more of a chance to win and make some sort of run, hopefully you kind of see that kind of defensive ability showing more consistently out of him. Because, again, like he, you see the way that you know he goes up and grabs lobs sometimes or slashes to the rim. He's, he's got the athleticism to do most things on both ends. And his shooting, again, it's been consistent, just 31% from beyond the arc this year. But it's not like he doesn't have the ability to shoot. It's just kind of – he's kind of an every-other-year kind of guy. You see him some years where, where he's – knocking down everything and then there's some where he's knocking down nothing I know that he struggled a lot when he started on Golden State but I don't know I'm interested to see where he goes and how he fits in and on to the summer league I feel like the team that is definitely making the most of an impact here at least to start the summer league is Houston's been I I don't want to get too excited over summer league everyone knows every year not everything's going to translate but they've had a lot of guys that have looked really good to start this summer league and in particular Jabari Smith has been fantastic a league leading 35 and a half points per game had the game winner over San Antonio the other day I mean he's looked he's looked like what the Houston Rockets thought they were getting when they drafted him at number two overall I mean and it's not just that he's putting out the points he's efficient with them I mean 48% from the field 33% from three both uh, 85% from the free throw line all of those are up from his splits in the regular season last year it's different going against summer league competition versus NBA competition but do you think that this is something that Rockets fans can get start getting a little bit excited about now seeing that he is starting to develop a little bit well sure it certainly is encouraging You, you don't want to put too much stock in the summer league it, I mean, you, you have to look at the competition he's going against. It's not the best, but certainly is better than if he was stinking it up every night, like some other players we've seen during the summer league. 
I, there's a reason that he went so high to the Rockets. You watched him at Auburn. He was all over the place. He was a dominant force in the SEC, which has arguably become the best basketball conference in college. So you knew it was going to take a little bit of time for him to adjust. He's young. That's fine. I think now giving him a little bit more time to, you know, learn uh, learn the playbook of um, Emeke Ime Udoka, Ime my bad. Yeah. Uh, Ime Udoka, who I think is a great coach, uh, aside from you know all of his antics off the court. I think you give him time in that system, he'll find his groove. I don't expect this dominance to carry into the regular season immediately. Give it a few weeks, allow him to kind of marinate in that offense, and he'll hit his stride. He he will not be a, a bad player this year by any stretch. Yeah, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but. Cam, Cam Whitmore's been really ugly so far to start the summer league, and it's not just that he's... For me, the thing that's concerning isn't the fact that he's been playing poorly. The thing that concerns me is that his struggles have been the exact thing that people were concerned about going into the draft. And you look at... It's it's not just that he's not scoring any crazy numbers. I mean, 16 points per game, it's not terrible for summer league. You'd expect a little more going against summer league competition, but regardless, the thing that concerns me is, is is the splits. You get forty two percent from the field, twenty four percent from three, fifty percent from the free throw line, and on top of that, two point seven turnovers a game. I mean, he's not exactly quelling the concerns about his efficiency and about his value t- towards team basketball. Do you think that this is something that the Rockets need to be concerned about at all? I, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, yes, to an extent, but just like I said with Jabari Smith, you, you have to be a little tempered. I think with Cam Whitmore, you know, it was interesting to me that he slid so far in the draft. I didn't expect him to go as late as he did. I actually wanted the Miami Heat uh, to draft him. However, we got Jaime Jaquez Jr., who's basically the Mexican Jimmy Butler, or will be, so I'm very happy. Uh, putting that aside, however, another shameless plug, um, Whitmore, I think what really concerns me the most about him, other than the turnovers, is his three-point shooting percentage. We're in a league where if you cannot shoot from three, players will just sag off of you, and you won't be as effective as you might be otherwise. Ben Simmons, of course, comes to mind. His three-point shooting percentage in this last season at Villanova was 34, and that's with a three-point arc that's closer to the basket than the NBA. It wasn't great. It, it wasn't awful, but not great. And then to see it plummet all the way down to where it's sitting at now, at 24, that's very concerning. He may develop into a decent slasher off of the bench, but I feel like that's what his ceiling can be unless he develops a three-point shot. When you look at the way that the Rockets roster is built right now, Slashing is not exactly something that they're short of. I mean, if if that becomes the thing that he develops into, that that can be fine. But I'm not sure that it gives him much of a role in the situation that he's in right now when Houston already has so much stock in other guys that do kind of that exact same thing. I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for him. I guess we'll see what happens. And kind of on the, on the other side of me being wrong, you got Keontae George has been fantastic for Utah. Do you, got, do you have any thoughts on uh, how his play could kind of, you know, fit into the Jazz's uh, regular season rotation once things get going in, in a few months? 
Keontae George has really been surprising. I think, you know, not to rub it in, uh, Brad Stevens has been great in Boston, but Danny Ainge is doing an amazing job over in Utah. He keeps on finding these people who are cast aside, people who, Laurie Markinen, of course, a, a solid player, turns him into an all-star starter in one year. I, I feel like Utah is slowly becoming one of these locations that players can go to to develop. Uh, Walker Kessler, of course, another you know, rookie last year who outshined expectations. So bringing it back to Keontae George, um, they obviously saw something in him in the draft and averaging almost 30 points a game on really good shooting splits. Of course, aside from his free throw percentage, 60% is not very good for a guard, but putting that aside, he's shooting above 50% from from uh, the field, 44 from three, which is very, which is interesting, of course, given his free throw percentage being so bad. Normally those go hand in hand. I mean, how many, how many guys can you think of that were bad at the stripe but good at three point like bruce bowen comes to mind that's a throwback but re regardless all this is to say i think keontae george will start off the bench in utah but could find his way into the starting lineup by the end of the year if he keeps us up yeah i mean my my big concern for george was his ability to see his offense translate to the pros because when you look at his time in college he he did have a tendency to struggle in terms of finding his his shot. He was he was good at slashing to the rim, but otherwise, even there he wasn't super efficient. It is exciting to see that so far he his jump shot has looked good, and I think that at the very least, his ability to play make can translate. I don't think that eight eight and a half assists per game, just three turnovers a game in the summer league so far. Cold vision isn't something that really changes as much, I feel like, when you go from one level to the other as opposed to building an offensive bag. So I, I, I am encouraged by his playmaking. I am still hesitant to buy into his offensive game. I'm, I'm not sure that this jumper is sustainable when you look at how we played in college, but I mean, Utah's a fun young team. They've got They've got a lot of fun young players. I think that when you look at who he's going to be surrounded with, I... I think that John Collins could be fun to watch him throw lobs to. I think that defensive energy that Collins Sexton brings, hopefully some of that can rub off onto Keontae. Utah's a team that I am excited to watch. I, I I do agree that Danny Ainge has done a fantastic job in building that roster during his time there. But one of the things that I've kind of one of the opinions that I've kind of developed on Ainge is that he's good at building a roster base, but he struggles with putting it over the top. And, and that's kind of what happened with the Celtics. I mean, he had that today, actually, was the 10-year anniversary of him trading Jason Terry, Kevin Gonad, and Paul Pierce for five picks that ended up becoming Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, unfortunately Kyrie Irving in a trade. <laughs> uh, and, of course, we can't forget uh, James Young out of the University of Kentucky, the guy that he drafted because of one dunk in the NCAA tournament that was kind of cool, I guess. But... Regardless, he he does build a good base. I, I think that you can look at this team and be encouraged, not just by their ability to win, but also they're a fun team to watch. I mean, if if it wasn't for the fact that they, they, they were in Utah, they'd have a lot more nationally televised games next year. It's a shame that they're a small market team, but it, it's an exciting team to watch. Absolutely is. You know, people like to talk about the elevation up in Denver. It's It's high up there, don't get me wrong. 
So it is in Utah too. They're a bouncy team. They're a young team. I will tune in to watch. Maybe I tune in to watch more if their if their uniforms weren't the worst in the league. Those are garish. That's not extremely relevant to the point. Um, I think the Jazz have a very bright future. They do have a very young head coach and Will Hardy. Uh, we'll see what he brings to the table. Um, I think overall, if it weren't for Damian Lillard demanding to go to Miami, seeing a reunion with him in Utah, going back to where he played college ball at Weber State up in Ogden, that team could compete but high at a high level. I'm talking Western Conference Finals probably. I don't, I'm not quite sure they get past the Nuggets or Suns, but who knows? I think they're. I think they have a lot of potential. They're a team that has the assets to go and acquire him too. I think. I think definitely more than the Heat does. If the Heat didn't have all the leverage in the world right now, probably more than the Celtics package. Just because they've got so many young players, I think a lot of the Celtics talent they don't want to give it up. Robert Williams is definitely a better piece than who's Miami offering right now. Tyler Hero. Tyler Hero is absolutely a better piece than Robert Williams, and to say otherwise is that's I I highly disagree. I mean, God, he's how he's young. He's at twenty. He's a reigning. Well, not this year, but the year before, six man of the year. I mean, he has good shooting splits. Sure, he's not great on defense, but we've we've talked a lot about that point before uh, this episode. Tyler Hero is an amazing piece. Any team should what, want to have him. What position does Tyler Hero play? He's a he's a two guard that can handle the ball. He can bring up the ball in a pinch, but he's a two guard. And what what does Portland have a million young players playing right now? I see where you're coming from. I understand they have Shaden Sharp and they have Anthony Simons and they have a plethora of guards. They what they the just drafted can... Scoot Henderson as well. True. Well, I was thinking. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Also, Scoot Henderson, my bad. So the Heat can swing Tyler Hero to a team like Brooklyn or San Antonio and get a couple pieces, a couple picks there and send them to Portland. And that's a better package than I think what the Celtics can offer, especially if Robert Williams is the centerpiece. Robert Williams, by the way, just to remind you people, is made of glass. He is not, you cannot count on him to stay healthy when you need him to. Yeah, but I, I do think that Having, you know, one good defensive player on that roster, especially in the, in the front court, would help the Blazers a lot, especially since since Nurkic's compound fracture a couple of years back. He hasn't been the same, not that he was a uh, lockdown defender beforehand, but that's an area that teams could just go right through the paint on them every time. I think that a rim protector is something that they need. Regardless, Boston's not going to go after him and get him. He said before that he doesn't want to play here. I'm not sure that Brad wants to go out and get a disgruntled player and add him to a team that's already young and close to being on the cusp anyway. But regardless, I, I, I do think that Utah would be a fun reunion spot for him. But They would. Also, one more thing about Portland I just wanted to talk about. How did Jeremy Grant get the biggest contract? of free agency and the only by the way the only player to get five years like that's a lot of term was it 160 million into a player who's like good but is he all-star level good maybe if he's the best player on a terrible team that was that was a lot i think that was cronin trying to appease lillard keeping his second best player around definitely did not do the trick but if i'm if i'm jeremy grant 
I'm never leaving my agent. That, that was an amazing move for him. I mean, the, and the next day, Lillard officially demanded the trade. So, Dame was on the same page as you, but again, you got to think about how much the contracts are exploding these days. Guys with max deals are making 60 a year, so 30 a year for, you know, a pretty good, you know, maybe just sub-all-star player isn't as bad as it sounds on paper. I think that people have a tendency to think about contracts based on how they were five years ago as opposed to how the money is now just because it's just absolutely exploded in a way that's just tough to mentally keep up with. It's it, it just it's just crazy money now, and it's, it, it's easy to forget that. I mean, Fred Van Vliet got 40 a year. <laughs> yeah, he did. Drake, Drake's uh, doppelganger. No, and I guess you do have, bring up a good point. There's the, I, I believe there's like a, if, if I'm correct, there's some new TV deal coming in that's going to raise the salary cap even higher. So I guess maybe in a few years it won't look as bad as now. I just think it's really funny to realize that Jeremy Grant got the most money in free agency this year. Yeah, no. You're right, you're right there. Uh, and then in terms of... Uh, Let's let's swing things over to Minnesota for a little bit. Uh, we've got... I don't know the last time that I've seen a second-round pick get the hype from his new franchise like Leonard Miller has gotten from Tim Wolves hands right now. And I'm, 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 I've been on the Leonard Miller hype train before the draft, too. I thought he was going to be, you know, just just after the lottery, you know, and, like, you know, the... 18, early 20 years old. So I, I do think they got a steal, but I've had pe- people already anointing him as the second coming. Uh, I, I do think that one of the comparisons that I saw the other day on Twitter was uh, more versatile uh, Jared Vanderbilt, and I, I like that one a little bit more than some of the stuff. But I do think that he has been showing some flashes. Are you encouraged by how he's been playing so far? And do you think that this this could be, you know, a real good draft steal for, for, for Minnesota? I, absolutely. I, I think that he has been an absolute steal at this point, which is something that teams like Minnesota need to capitalize on when they have this draft capital because I love Minnesota. It showed me some of the best times I've ever had. Not so much a free agent destination. So making these picks and, and hitting on them is, is massive, which is another reason why I think trading for Rudy Gobert was not the best idea. That being said, I think Leonard Miller has the makings of a starter at some point in this league, and, and if not a high-end starter, at least a very solid one. You look at his shooting splits now in the summer league, 50% from three is not sustainable, but if he can keep it in the high 30s, low 40s, I feel like he can he can do pretty well. Of course, he's only four for eight, small sample size, but if he can keep it up to a respectable level, I think that there's absolutely a place for him in the rotation in Minnesota. Um, and I also wonder, and this is purely conjecture. I did not watch a lot of the G League this year. Was he overshadowed just a little bit too much in G League Ignite by Scoot Henderson? Obviously, Scoot Henderson is the better player. I think anyone that argues that is probably from Minnesota, which is fine. Um, But I wonder if, given the ability to have a little bit more on his plate, be a little bit more of a playmaker, he might be able to be be that swingman that Minnesota needs next to Anthony Edwards. I I, I don't expect him to be a guy that shoots... 40% from, if he if he can shoot 40% from three great 
I'd, I'd, I'd love to see it. I think that if they can just get him even shooting, you know, consistently, even lower mid-30s, 34%, I would be thrilled with that. I think that playing him alongside a lineup of, you know, uh, Jaden McDaniels and, you know, other guys that maybe aren't as great spacing floor, having him provide some spacing at all, I think that would be welcome, especially since his defense has looked good so far in the summer league. I mean, and it's one of those things that, again, he's defending summer league players. He's he's not He's not defending all NBA guys right now but it's encouraging it's better than him playing bad defense to say the least so I mean you got to take what you can get I I think that Minnesota overall has done a pretty good job with what they've had the ability to do in this offseason I mean obviously bringing back the man the myth the legend Nas Reed you you can't ask for them to do much more than that with the cap space that they're in and their lack of first round picks, but I think that they're making steps in the right direction, anyway. Which last year I was kind of, I I did still think of last year as a little bit of a backpedal, even though they ended up in the same spot as they had the year before. But I feel like this year, relative to what assets they had, they they did what they could, and I, I'm I'm satisfied with how their team is kind of shaping up right now. I am as well. It's interesting to look at, you know, all the big men that Minnesota has stockpiled. Obviously, you have Cat. I won't I won't talk too much about him. He's an amazing player. Changed the game. He, he did change the game, yeah. You know, 40 years from now, people will say that. But, obviously, Rudy Gobert, not the best on offense. But defensively, again, a little overrated. But still solid. He's fine. Yeah, he's not his same defensive player of the year player that he was with Utah, but I mean, he's at least, you know, making an impact there, which Minnesota needs. Also, I will go out on record and say the Stifle Tower is the best nickname in the league. Yeah, I mean, you, you can also talk about Austin Reeves being Hillbilly Kobe's a pretty good one, too. I like that one. That That's pretty great. That is, that is, I don't know if it's too soon to anoint him any nickname that has Kobe in it, but we'll see. Um, but going back to Minnesota's bigs, Nas Reed. Him developing a three ball, which was not there at LSU, has is the reason why Minnesota decided to pay him. I, I think that was a great move. I was a little jealous when that happened. I thought he'd be a great fit again next to Bam Adebayo um, in Miami. Great move by Minnesota. And then also you have younger guys like Luca Garza. Obviously, he spent four years in in college at Iowa. Who knows what his ceiling is, how much more he can develop. But he showed out in spurts. So while I think there's a little bit more work to be done on the backcourt there in Minnesota, their frontcourt is very exciting and and I think can be the anchor that leads uh, Minnesota to, I would say, probably a play-in spot. Yeah, no, I agree. I I, I do think that they they, they do have, you know, great, strong wing defenders too. Like, I I love Jaden McDaniels and... He, he, I think he should have been all defense this year. I think that him not making it was an absolute snub. He'll, he should make it next year. Not not to go back to Nasri too much, but I, I'm not sure the last time I've known a player that everyone that's seen him play has just universally been like, huh, I like this guy. Like, like he's, he's just very universally, you know, oh, yeah, he's nice. I, I'm, I'm hoping that the rest of the people that aren't in Minnesota start seeing more of him now and paying more notice because he's a guy that hasn't really gotten the credit that he's 
earned in his time so far in the league. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. And then also, talking about the Timberwolves and their uh, and their free agency acquisitions, sure, retaining Reed was probably the most impactful, but signing Shake Milton away from Philadelphia, I think that his role there was a little diminished, and I think he might actually be given, you know, the room to shine in Minnesota. I think in spurts, he's been very good as a two-guard. So we'll see, but I, I think low-key, Shake Milton could turn out to be a much better player in Minnesota than he's been anywhere else so far in his career. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that... I, I think I think you're on to something. The one thing that concerns me is his kind of inconsistency. He's been kind of up and down with his three-point shot, but if he can kind of nail it down more consistently, he could be, you know, a major role play for guy that could kind of get his career rejuvenated a little I guess I don't want to say rejuvenated because it's not like he was a star in Philly, but he was an exciting young guy. I remember when he first started really getting minutes, he was a fun player to watch, and I'm hoping that he can continue to kind of ascend a little bit. And well, since you're from Miami, I'd, I'd be remiss if we didn't touch on Miami a little bit. I, I know that Orlando Robinson's he's had a good summer league, third in, third in the league in scoring right now, 25.5 points a game on 59% from the field and 57% from three on three and a half attempts a game. Do we feel like that's, do we feel like he could actually, you know, make an impact this year in a way that he didn't last year? I, I, he didn't even really touch the court for y'all much at all. He did not, which is really surprising to me when our backup center in the NBA Finals against Nikola Jokic was Cody Zeller. Cody Zeller, by the way, was a minus five in, I think, game five in his, like, two minutes on the court in a game in which the Heat lost by five points. He has to have dirt on Eric Spolstra at, in some capacity for him to have gotten all those minutes, but he's in New Orleans now. The bad man can't scare us any longer. Orlando Robinson is interesting. I remember, you know, keeping track of all the signings going on the first couple days of free agency, and the Heat signed Thomas Bryant, who I thought didn't get enough minutes in Denver and would be a really nice backup center. And then we converted Orlando Robinson to a, from his two-way deal to a standard contract, which was a little confusing. Barely saw the court. He played well in spurts against Orlando in the regular season, but that's Orlando. What I'm seeing in the Summer League is extremely encouraging, and I think he might actually beat out Thomas Bryant for that, that backup spot there at the center position. You may even be able to run him in certain sets with Bam Adebayo. I'm not starting, but mid-game at some point, which is very interesting. It's encouraging to see. The rest of the Heat's young guys, I think what they're doing is they're making our package a little bit more compelling for Portland, but in a, in the universe in which they hold on to Lillard or he goes somewhere that's not Miami, God forbid, I think these young guys, they're at least giving me a little bit more hope. I mentioned Jaime Hakez Jr. before. He's an older guy. He was a senior at UCLA. Said before the draft that he looked up to Jimmy Butler and his play style. And while he'll never be Jimmy Butler, that is not what I'm saying. Their play style is similar. A lot of isolation, a lot of mid-range jumpers. He's a great off-ball defender, a leader, hustle guy. I think he's plug-and-play in a Heat team that's going to be contending for the finals for at least the next couple of seasons. But Hakez aside, Nikola Jovic, not to be you know confused with Jokic, has been a revelation. He has, every time he steps on the court, granted it's been two or three games, 
he reminds me of Giannis. And I'm not saying he's as good as Giannis, but his play style, getting downhill, just going vertical toward the hoop. He's built like a Mack truck. Pictures of him from last year, he looked malnourished. I mean, he was young. He was just, um, just drafted out of Serbia. Not a lot of meat on those bones. He's really filled out his frame. He looks thick now. Not Kyle Lowry thick, but thick. He has a good three ball as well. He looks like our potential starting power forward this year. He he really excites me. He If I had to choose between our, our young players, um, one to choose to try to keep out of a trade for Lillard, I'm keeping Jovic over guys like Jaime Jaquez, over absolutely Haywood Highsmith, who played really well in spurts, and also Caleb Martin. I'd rather send Caleb Martin to Portland than I would be willing to get rid of Jovic. He really excites me. And I'm, I'm glad they made sure to touch on a little bit the fact that you're not saying that he's as good as Giannis, because I feel like a lot of people get kind of lost in casual com- player comparisons, thinking, oh, well, this guy got compared to this guy. The, the scout's saying that he's just as good. No, that's not what they're saying. It's just when you watch a guy, you want to talk about who they play like. It's easiest to make accessible comparisons. If you compare him to, say, Bojan Bogdanovic, that's not going to mean much to the casual NBA fan, even though I think Bojan is a very good player, a guy that makes big shots. You want to make him so people can understand what you're saying. He plays like Giannis. Maybe won't be as good as him, but he's a damn good player, and he could make an impact. I, as a Celtics fan, I hope he doesn't make an impact. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, just again to second what Jake was just yeah. saying. In no universe does Jovic even sniff how good Giannis has been. Giannis is a top 30 guy all time, maybe by this point. Jovic will not be that. But Jovic has the potential to be a high-end starting power forward and a guy that can shoot next to a guy like Bam that could put the heat over the top. Yeah, and also you got to think about the fact, too, when Giannis came into the league, he was also built like, you know, a little bit of a string bean. <laughs> you could get, give him a couple of years, pack on that muscle, whole other guy. Kind of cost him his jump shot a little bit, but, I mean, he could be an exciting guy to watch develop. And I guess before we kind of start to wrap things up, one thing that... I do want to touch on is just kind of putting a little bit of a grain of salt on the Summer League performances. I mean, you look at some of the guys that have won Summer League MVP in recent years. You got names like Tyus Jones won in 2016, Glenn Rice in 2014, Josh Selby. Like, there's a lot of guys. In here. It's, you do have, you know, the stars. You do have Dame won a Summer League MVP, but... Most of the time, I think he's the only one from his draft class that ended up being the best player from his class. Blake Griffin in 09, possibly. Steph Curry was in that class. I and rescind, James Harden. I rescind my <laughs> former statement. Uh, he's, he, was, he did end up being great, I think. Yeah, he, injuries, he was a great player. Yeah. Injuries ruined him, but I, I, I do get your point. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's definitely good to take a step back and, and go over some of these names that you probably barely recognize it is sobering when you look at the summer league these are guys that when the summer league is over two or three guys on each team might make the roster some might go to g league some might go overseas some may never play professional basketball again this is not the nba this is not the best league in the world it's a very watered down version of that can jabari smith who's tearing it up go on and become an all-star in the future Sure, 
but it's not guaranteed. For example, look at Imani Bates. Imani Bates has been doing pretty good in, in the in the summer league. He did get a little uh, bamboozled by a, by a fake stat line that he reposted from a game in which he scored 12 points inefficiently. The stat line said he scored 27 very efficiently. Really odd. That being said, he's the kind of guy, I think, that could be great in the summer league. But will he sniff an NBA roster on a solid team? I'm not so sure. Yeah, he's he's one of those guys that's very high risk, high reward, and I'm, I'm I was excited to see in in his last game in Memphis, twenty one on seven of eleven from the field, five of eight from three, and that's the you know baby KD thing that we've heard comes from since he was in high school. Hope it plays out, but on the other hand, we've also seen. Last year, you look at Warriors fans, they were saying that Moses Moody was going to break out because he led the Summer League in scoring. Didn't do a whole lot in the league last year. So it's just important when you look at what's going on in the Summer League every year that it's got to be taken with a grain of salt. It, does, it doesn't mean nothing, it, and it's, it's, it's a good way to get a feel for how guys are developing, but just because you're balling out versus lower-level competition doesn't mean that you're ready for the big show quite yet, so... Just kind of a little asterisk next to today's discussions. Well, anyway, on that note, that's all we've got for you folks today. Tom, thank you again for coming on. We appreciate you having you having you here as our guest. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is this has been a great experience. Uh, I love talking ball. All righty, and uh, for. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug? Ah, <laughs> uh, interesting. Uh, you can you, you don't need to plug yourself. You can plug a concept. You can plug an idea. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I'm gonna plug the Miami Marlins winning the World Series this year. That's what I'm plugging. I, I don't think I used that term right, but that's what's gonna happen. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah, I mean, you they they have only made the playoffs one time in which they didn't make the in which they didn't win the World Series. So, we've never had a record this good and not. I'm just saying, history repeats itself. History is a flat circle. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that you're in the same division as the Atlanta Braves. I am too. Yeah. <laughs> and in terms of my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at Jake McNeil underscore or on threads at Jake McNeil triple underscore. You can also find my writing in the Marshall Independent. I hope to see you all next week and uh, have a blessed day. <laughs>